What is the best kind of life? What is truly living? Who's really got it made in the world? And we have a lot of different answers to that. Each culture has their own marks of success or, or um, victory. In America, it may be products somebody has. Have you got the latest Apple Watch? Have you got whatever kind of car? Have you got whatever kind of clothing? Maybe uh, the people who have got it made are those who have influence or have a good-paying job. Uh, the self-made person is kind of a, an ethos in our country that those are the people that really are blessed, that are living their best life. Pull yourself up from your, by your bootstraps. But the values of Jesus' kingdom that he uh, talks about here in Matthew 5 are quite different. In Jesus' upside-down kingdom, he empowers the poor, the empty, and the powerless to carry out his kingdom mission. He sends them out, and that's the kind of life that's really living. We've heard already about Jesus in the first four chapters through his genealogy, his nativity, his baptism, his temptations, his ministry, that he is the Messiah, the son of David, the baptizer with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is God saves. He is God with us. Uh, He is the ruler, shepherd. He's the father's priceless and deeply pleasing son, and he is a light to the nations. We can hardly wait to hear what he has to say. And at the end of chapter 4, we heard the first words of his, of his proclamation, which was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe. Turn around and turn to God. We heard last week about his specific call into the lives of four followers, the first four disciples. It was a very personal call to follow him. And something about him, something about, I would call the Holy Spirit's internal conviction or calling, caused these four to immediately obey. At the same time, though, there's a whole crowd that's following because of his teaching and his healing ministry especially. They saw demons cast out, blind people seeing, and lame people walking. And they came to him on a mountain to listen to what he had to say. What will come next? You might think if he was a traditional king, he might say, let's kick out the Romans. Come on, follow me. Let's get this done. Or where's the director of the social media marketing campaign? We have a lot of good news to get out. But instead, he teaches us about his kingdom and its values And it's a shocking contrast to what you think a king might say. And as Maddie comes up to read that for us, I want to tell you, I want to give a lot of credit to my Bible professor from college, Dale Bruner, whose commentary on Matthew I I borrowed a lot from, including this outline. So Maddie, would you read for us the Sermon on the Mount, the inauguration of it, the Beatitudes? Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thank you. Well done. So, thank you, yes. Uh, I think one of the first questions we have to answer when we look at this is, what does this word blessed or blessed even mean? Some translations say, happy are you. 
Well, the Greek word is uh, markarios, and it, it means to, to, to bless. And there could be four different ways we'd look at what he means when he says, blessed are you. The first would be the communication or the delivering of a blessing. Uh, when uh, Jacob and Esau were, were fighting over who got their father's blessing, they knew that blessing would actually do something. It would actually accomplish blessing. So is it possible he's saying, I'm communicating or announcing blessing to you? It could be an exhortation. It could be saying, hey, uh, you ought to live this way. The people who live this way, they're the ones who got it made. So you, try, you should try to be meek. You ought to try to be poor in spirit. You should try to be pure in heart. It could be congratulation, saying, if you are these things, if you are meek, if you are poor in spirit, if you are persecuted, hey, good job, way to go. It could also be a declaration, just, just a statement of the reality that exists. By the way, the people who are poor, they're the ones that are blessed. I'm just kind of stating the way things are here. And I think that maybe there is some element of each of these four elements in the, the expression, blessed are you. But I think that first one, communication of blessing, is most likely in view here. He's saying, may God bless you. He's saying, I am with you. He's saying, I am on your side. Jesus' words communicate or deliver a blessing. They accomplish something. Much like how an umpire calls and announces balls and strikes. Or like a minister communicates uh, that a, a husband and wife are a new family unit. He pronounces them husband and wife. Or a judge communicates a sentence of guilty or not guilty. Jesus' words of blessing actually do something. I've got a pretty thin wall in my office, and when Sharon next door sneezes, I say, bless you. But that doesn't accomplish much. It just lets her know that I heard her sneeze. But I think Jesus announcing a blessing is more like Isaac blessing Jacob. And if the patriarchs could deliver blessings that accomplish something, how much more could God in flesh actually deliver blessing? So who does God bless? He blesses needy people. Jesus graces needy people with his blessing. The first four Beatitudes talk about needy people who are empty and, and are aware of their need. Who have an absence of the Spirit, an absence of joy, power, and righteousness. This first Beatitude, I call it B1. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They inherit the kingdom. Who are these poor in spirit? Commentator William Barclay says, that's the spirit which recognizes its own utter lack of resources to meet life and which finds its help and strength in God. The person who is poor in spirit is the person who's realized that things mean nothing and that God means everything. We should be careful not to simply spiritualize what Christ is saying here. If we look at Luke chapter 4, the parallel to this, in, in Luke's gospel, he records Jesus saying, blessed are the poor, those who materially, physically have little. And I think that both spiritual and physical poverty are in view here. Because Matthew chose for poor the very strongest word he could choose for poverty in his day. Dr. Bruner says that the gospel poor are the poorest of the poor, and probably not those who choose to live simply or in modest poverty. Rather, the gospel poor are those on the margins of society, the city's underclass, the worldwide wretched of the earth. This kind of smacks us in the face because we tend to think that God favors the rich, we say, blessed are the rich in spirit. Blessed are those who have it all together. We say, look at just who, who just walked into the church. God must be happy to have them on the team because they're successful. But scripture has a lot to say about God's favor on those who are physically impoverished. Don't simply spiritualize this kind of poverty. 
But poverty in and of itself doesn't make one more spiritual or necessarily a citizen of heaven. The Bible says poverty creates conditions that make one dependent upon God. James 2 says God has favored the poor with this gift of faith because they need to rely on God daily for their food. On the other hand, the wealthy can, can confuse um, hoarding with good stewardship. But God says that the, the poor are the ones who are rich in faith. So when you hear this phrase, poor in spirit, think of those who are impoverished and feel crushed as a result. Blessed are those who feel their poverty or who suffer their poverty and cry out to God. Jesus blesses those who have reached the bottom, spiritually, emotionally, and physically, who can't live without God's supernatural intervention. And for such desperate people, those that the world calls failures, God is especially there. Simply put, the gospel poor in spirit are the people who recognize they're helpless without God's help. And the great enemy of the gospel, in light of this first beatitude, is our worship of success, our worship of the people the world calls winners. Again, we think blessed are the rich, but the beatitudes turn the value systems of the world and even in many churches on their head. Jesus sides with those who fail and feel their failure. He blesses the spiritually inadequate. And throughout all the Gospels, we find that the people who generally are, are, uh, are righteous are the ones who know how unrighteous they are, who feel their sin, and they turn to God in repentance. While those who are sure they're righteous and have it all together are actually the ones that are the most lost. I think of John chapter 9 with the healing of the blind man and the Pharisees Jesus calls blind, saying, you think you can see it shows how blind you really are. And so what's Jesus say to these low, impoverished, inadequate people? He says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is one of only two of the nine Beatitudes that promises a, a right now gift. Theirs is, not theirs will be, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But it's two-edged because the kingdom of heaven is already here, but it's not fully here. It's here in seed form. Think of a tiny sapling or tiny tree, but it's not fully, fully grown, fully developed. He promises them the, the kingdom of God is theirs, but its, it's most full realization is in, is in the world to come. So Christ's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, and those who are on the top now will be on the bottom. Those on the lowest, uh, the lowest of the low will be lifted very high. And it's important to see that Christ conveys blessing not because of these people who are virtuous, but because these people are inadequate. He blesses the inadequate, not those who appear to have it all together. It's very, very upside-down. Next, he blesses those who mourn. He says they'll be comforted. Most of us are so averse to mourning, we'll do anything to escape sorrow. We'll excuse ourselves if other people are sad. We don't want to be around sad people. I'm, I'm pretty uh, cold-hearted at times, and when Kim and I were dating, uh, we were watching some sappy movie, and, and she was over there sniffling, and I thought, oh, she's probably got a cold. And I looked over, and I said, are you crying? She's like, I learned not to do that, but just to get her Kleenex. So some of us really want to avoid sorrow and suffering. Others of us are obsessed with sadness, and we have pity parties for ourselves, and we love the attention that comes as a result of all of our sadness. But Jesus beautifies mourning, not moping. Later on in this sermon, he's going to talk about when you fast, don't fast and show it externally like, oh, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in mourning, I'm, I'm fasting, and just please feel bad for me. He says, no, cover up all of the external appearances of your fasting so people don't have to feel sorry for you. Uh, but he blesses real sadness. 
and people who really mourn and grieve. And it's interesting that mourning and grieving can coexist with a very joy-filled life. How many of you have seen the Disney movie Inside Out? It's from Disney, so it must be true, right? But in that movie, spoiler alert, in that movie, one of the main points is joy and sadness need each other. If we just try to, to be joyful and we don't, we don't embrace sorrow, it's really hard to be truly joyful. And so Jesus blesses the brokenhearted, the ones who weep. And we shouldn't be surprised because Isaiah the prophet talked about this, this Messiah. And Jesus read this scripture, Isaiah 61, and applied it to himself. So we know for certain he saw himself as this Messiah. So Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. We heard that in the first beatitude. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn. So God is near those who mourn. Are you grieving today? Maybe you're grieving the loss of a loved one or a close friendship or the loss of your health or the loss of a dream that has died. On Jesus' authority, we learn that in times of deep sadness, we are more closely in God's hands than maybe any other time. Isn't that comforting? In times of deep sadness, we may be closer to the Lord than at any other time. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord's close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A brief commercial here. There's a great ministry in our town called Grief Share. There's groups meeting at our sister church, Green Community. There's two groups meeting at Redeemers. If you're interested, mark your communication card. I'll send you information about this. But it's a way to really help one another in the name of Christ to share our grief, as the name implies. But blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Some of that is the the one-anothering that we do in the church, the comforting one another when we gather like this. Jesus graces some more needy people when he says, Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. What is meekness? The Greek word is praus. When it's used of things, the word means mild. If you have some mild salsa in your fridge, it's praus. Uh, when, When this word is used of animals, it means tame. When it's used of people, it means gentle, pleasant, or quiet. You could describe this word meekness as strength under control. If you have an ox and the ox has been tamed, it's not a weak ox. It's a very strong ox, but you've controlled it. You've been able to focus it the way you want to. And I believe Jesus is blessing people who are powerless or who have kept their power under control. For the third time in a row, he's honoring people the world looks down on, the impoverished, the mourning, and those who either are powerless or willingly restrain their power. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus not only blesses those who are meek, he calls himself meek. He says, come unto me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am meek or gentle and humble in heart. He calls himself meek. If you want to define meekness, look at Jesus. Look at the way he came into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, not on a stallion or a war horse, but on an animal of peace on the back of a donkey. Look most specifically at his trial and his crucifixion. He could have called a, a legion of angels to his defense, but he didn't. He chose to restrain his power and let himself be put to death. In his trial, he was mainly silent. He didn't rush to his own defense. Dr. Bruner says this, The overall impression of Jesus on trial is an impression of poise. 
It is the poise of not having to assert oneself. It's the poise of a believer. There is a meekness that is almighty and a gentleness that is strong. There is an almighty meekness and a strong gentleness. Isn't that cool? But the common wisdom of how you build a kingdom is very different. You build it on the back of military might. Here's Hannibal crossing the Italian Alps with his war elephants, probably the greatest military commander ever. If you're going to start a kingdom in the world sense, you've got to have military might. You've got to have good systems of transportation and communication to carry goods and people back and forth. But Jesus doesn't recruit warriors or politicians or a marketing team. He exalts the powerless. And zealots of all types have never liked Christ's blessing of the, of the weak. It's the aggressive, not the meek, who inherit the earth, they say. It's those who push, those who struggle, who get their piece of land. But Jesus, first to the dependent poor, then to the grief-stricken, and now to the unaggressive. He gives everything, God's kingdom, God's comfort, and God's green earth. Could it really be that the little people are the hope of the earth? That God favors them and is going to use them, not the big people, the impressive people, the movers and shakers? Look at countless movie plots that have this exact same thing as their plot. Whether it's the Lego movie, where Emmett, the poor ordinary Lego piece, is actually exalted to the hero. Or the Lord of the Rings, where hobbits Bilbo and Frodo Baggins are the only creatures who can carry the evil ring of power to its destruction. Sorry, spoiler alerts here. Uh, Because they are meek. They are not seeking power, but they're given great power or authority to accomplish this mission. I think this is a common movie theme because it's true. It's the fact that God does use very ordinary, powerless people to show his strength and, and to exalt them. So Jesus blesses the meek and promises them an inheritance, the earth. And the emphasis is on the future. They're going to reign with God over the new heavens and the new earth in the age to come. Next, Christ blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says they will be filled. As if it weren't upside down enough already, now he is blessing the insufficiently righteous. He blesses people not because they're righteous, but because they feel starved for and in need of righteousness. He doesn't say, blessed are you who are righteous, but those who hunger and thirst for, those who long for righteousness. Ambrose, the 4th century bishop of Milan, said, As soon as I have wept for my sins, I begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness. So is this righteousness primarily about right relationships with God or with others? I think both are in mind. As our video said at the beginning, the Sermon on the Mount is the primary ethical teaching of the New Testament. In the primary ethical teaching of the Old Testament, it was given on tablets of stone. And theologians talk about the two tablets, the first tablet, the first four commandments. I'm not sure if it actually was evenly on two tablets or maybe the first one spilled over into the second one. I'm not sure. But we like to keep it tidy and say the first four, the first tablet was about relationships with God, honoring God. And the next six on the second tablet about relationships with others. So they are, they are um, totally intertwined. Righteousness between us and God and between others. The foundation for social righteousness is right relationship with God. We can't really be right with each other until we're right with God and vice versa. (laughs) The Bible says, if you're right with me, you're going to pursue right relationships with others. And some of the harshest words in the Bible was for people who said, I'm right with God, but they did not love or show mercy to others. You can't say you love God and not show love for others. So what's the promise for these hungry and thirsty people? You will be filled. Your hunger and thirst will be satisfied. Perhaps in some ways now, but mostly in the future. 
the kingdom of heaven and its values are going to be fully realized, not just the seed of the plant, but the fully realized tree when Christ returns and sets up his heavenly kingdom. He's going to return with satisfyingly righteous judgments and vindications for the whole of his suffering world and church. I'm not sure how you can preach this sermon and and preach a prosperity gospel, which essentially says God wants to do good things for you now. He wants to bless you materially on this earth, physically rewarding you for your faith and for giving to our ministry. Um, That's the prosperity gospel. Jesus wants to prosper you now. And, and there certainly are wonderful benefits of trusting and obeying Jesus now, but they're not primarily material or in this earth. They're primarily out of this world. Jesus actually says instead that life here is going to be pretty hard. As they say in Britain, it's going to be a slog. Many unfulfilled dreams on this side of heaven, but Jesus says, I am with you. I bless you. I'm with you in the midst of that. So it's important to realize that he's not giving us a list of to-do items. I, I often was taught as a youngster, I've heard, heard these passages called the be attitudes. Make your attitude this way. I think that's wrong. I think Jesus is not saying, here's what to do. Be poor in spirit. Be mournful. Be meek. Be hungry and thirsty. He is saying, when you know that you're empty, when you know that you're in need, that's when I'm the closest to you. That's the kind of people that I want, the kind of people I want to use. Second Corinthians, at the very end, Paul is saying, uh, he, he, he kept asking God to deliver him from this physical infirmity, probably a problem with his eyes. It was painful. It was uncomfortable. But God says, no, I'm not taking this from you because you know what? My power is made perfect in your weakness. Beginning to end of the Bible, that is the theme. God uses powerless, needy people to show his strength. We shouldn't leave the Beatitudes feeling guilty or inadequate unless you came in today feeling puffed up with pride. They ought to leave us feeling grateful for Jesus' deep love for the inadequate and eager to love others as we have been loved. And that's the transition. As Jesus has blessed these four groups of needy people, he then sets them upon their feet and sends them out to bless the world. The next Beatitudes, the next three of them, are actually ones of ministry, of going out. They are Jesus sending out people who've been filled up by his grace. He sends out graceful people. These next three are called the Beatitudes of help. People who have served others with the grace they've been served. In the next three, we move from suffering to doing, from grace to works. And that's how it is in the Bible. When we've been loved, we want to love. When we've been shown mercy, we want to show mercy. And so Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. They will be shown mercy. And mercy or compassion is one of the primary attributes of God. Think of Exodus 34. Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God hides him in the cleft of the rock, and he passes by and he whispers what? Yahweh, Yahweh the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The first word out of his mouth after Yahweh, the self-existing, ever-living one, is compassionate. Compassion is one of God's primary attributes and it ought to be one of the primary attributes of his people. St. Augustine says, the merciful are those who come to the aid of the needy. And a guy named Remigius of Auxerre, a Benedictine monk from the ninth century, said, The merciful is he who has a sad heart. He counts others' misery as his own and is as sad at their grief as at his own. A theologian named Adolf Schlatter said this, People who are poor, think of the first beatitude, troubled, think of the second beatitude, meek, the third one, and repentant, are precisely those who have a heart for the fall and the need of others. 
while it's the curse of the rich and satisfied that their situations make them harder towards others. There was a gal in Lodi I knew named Kim, not my wife Kim, uh, but another Kim uh, who was one of the poorest people that I knew in that town. And she was living in her car, and then she finally got a small apartment. And not long after that, she invited a family of four to come and move in with her. And I thought, you just barely got on your feet. Why are you letting yourself be drained down by these people? But she knew what it was to hurt. She knew, knew what it was to be homeless. And I find that over and over again, some of the most compassionate people are those who have so little and have just been set on their feet by God. It's important to see, too, that mercy or, or forgiving or loving isn't a condition of God's grace. He doesn't say, I'm going to love you if you're merciful or compassionate. But it's a necessary consequence. That's the only way to make sense of this fifth beatitude of the petition in the Lord's Prayer, uh, forgive us as we forgive others, in a Matthew's whole gospel. Those who have been forgiven much want to forgive others much. And a great parable of this I can't go into now, but is Matthew 18, 23 to, 20 to 35, the parable of the unforgiving servant. It just doesn't work that you've been forgiven so much, but you won't go and forgive a little bit. So maybe look at that when you get home. Matthew 18, 23, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Here's a painful quote from Dr. Bruner, but so true. There is a morality that hardens, that makes one more severe with others, the more one's learned to be severe with oneself. I'm going to beat myself up, and I'm going to beat you up. But the first test of obedience to Jesus' ethic is not whether obedience makes one morally tougher, but whether it makes one mercifully softer. God's people ought to be the softest, most merciful, most compassionate people there are, not the hardest, strictest, most judgmental. Fullness of mercy exists to be passed on, not stored up. God intends that his believers hand mercy on to others or else. But again, mercy doesn't earn our forgiveness. It shows that we've been forgiven. Next, he says, I'm going to bless the pure in heart, or I bless the pure in heart, for they will see God. And purity was such a a big theme in the Old Testament, ritual purity. It was really picked up and run with by the Pharisees. They perfected this art of of purity, and they had certain kinds of hand washings they did, certain rituals, things they touched, things they didn't touch. And Jesus railed on them for missing the whole point of the Old Testament law. You are filthy beyond comprehension. You cannot clean yourself up. You need to come to God to be cleansed. And so those who are pure in heart are those who are centered on God whose motives are simply to love and obey him. We can even have mixed motives in our our religious duties. We can even come to church sometimes to appear more respectable or out of habit. We can pray or read the Bible because we like to be be thought of the kind of person who does that. In my devotions this morning, I was reading, and we work in those kind of statements. The pure in heart love God because they love God. But don't we all know that purity of heart is a struggle? Jeremiah 17.9 says, The human heart is deceptively wicked. Who can understand it? Every one of us has a wicked and deceiving heart. But we are, we're reminded by Jesus that every struggle for, or for purity through obeying Jesus' commands is an investment in a clearer knowledge of God. Nothing is more important than seeing God and seeing him clearly. So when we purify our hearts, we can see God more clearly. And not an angry heart, but Martin Luther says, we're going to see the pure in heart see God's fatherly, friendly heart toward them through faith. He who believes in Christ and yet regards God as angry is not seeing God correctly. 
So how does this sixth beatitude uh, re, re, you know, tie in with being full and being sent out? Well, when the pure in heart are sent out on God's mission to love him and to love the world, they can do it with pure motives because they've been loved freely and purely. There's no mixed motives as we go out and serve. There's no need to be needed. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Next, he blesses the peacemakers. They're going to be called the children of God. A peacemaker is one who actively creates peace between people. We could spend all morning on this concept of peace or shalom in the Bible. It's huge. It's so far-reaching. But shalom could easily be defined quickly as communal well-being in every direction and every relationship. Jesus doesn't just bless those who are peace-loving or peace-wanting, which can remain passive, or even peace-living, which is an individual thing, but peacemaking, which is active and social and that involves other people. And it's actually really, really hard. I was going to tell a story this morning about the Rwandan genocide and how hard of work some people have done to try to heal the wounds between the Hutus and the Tutsis. 25 years ago, there was a million people killed uh, genocide in Rwanda. And then last night I was with Danny Fromdahl, and he said, did you realize that my daughter got to meet two of these people Friday, two days ago? Here's a picture. There's Bethany, and she's with a couple people whose names are Emmanuel and Alice. And during the genocide, Emmanuel, who was a Hutu, he hacked off uh, Alice's hand with a machete. He hacked her hand off, and then he killed her baby. And he confessed after the war. He was imprisoned, and then he was released. And after he was released, he really felt remorse, and he went to his victims, the ones he could find, and he apologized. He found Alice, and he asked her forgiveness. He hacked off her hand, and he killed her baby. She's a Christian, and Alice prayed. She talked to her husband, and a couple weeks later, she said, I forgive you, and now these people are friends. They've appeared on ABC News, and they go around talking about peacemaking. (laughs) Peacemaking is not easy. It's very, very hard. Christ has given us this ministry, though. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says that we've been given a ministry of reconciliation, reconciling people to each other and to God. God calls peacemakers his children because they are like him. So who are the ones who've got it made? The empty, the powerless, the outsiders. Christ picks these people up, helps them, and sends them out to help others as merciful, pure in heart peacemakers. And then finally, Christ revives hurt people. These next two Beatitudes talk about persecution. Isn't it strange that when, you, uh, when, we, when people have been graced and helped and they go out into the world, the world is strangely resistant and the world it, it, it persecutes. This should surprise us because we tend to assume that the better somebody is, the easier they have it in life. The closer you are to God, the better your life is. And that's true in many ways. But persecution, Jesus tells us, should be expected if you're going to seek justice, if you're going to be a peacemaker. And actually, if you're really living like a Christian, you should expect bitter unpopularity. Today in America, we can tend to think of persecution uh, for being associated with Christ as maybe tied into uh, defending the Bible's clear teaching on the gender makeup of a marriage, or when does life truly begin, or what healthy relationships and sexuality look like. And by the way, as an aside, I think we ought to have a lot better, more life-giving answers to these questions. The Bible has some really, really wonderful things to say about how life-giving God's view of relationships are. But let's expand beyond the obvious, easy answers and ask, how would our culture, how would our coworkers, how would our friends respond if we lived out what the Bible has to say about integrity? 
about workaholism, about materialism, about self-promotion. I know workplaces where the only way to get ahead is to self-promote, to pat yourself on the back and to put down others. What if we work to make peace even with our enemies rather than jumping on the bandwagon of criticizing or demonizing those who think differently? I know too many stories of friendly fire that have come on people who tried to build loving relationships with Muslim neighbors or same-sex attracted or transgender co-workers, and then they get attacked for it. People who have been brave enough to admit uh, that they are in a different political party than somebody else and not just jump on the cable news bandwagon of all the sound bites. Did you know that our hope is not in politics? <laughs> we can hope to elect godly people and have godly laws, but our hope is never ultimately in politics. And so Jesus blesses those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And this doesn't count if you're persecuted because you're obnoxious. Some of us are just obnoxious and we get persecuted and it's not what Christ is talking about. There's a way to speak clearly and even prophetically the words of Christ in a way that's pure and peaceable and not all about you and not obnoxious. This also isn't a call to be Eeyore. Oh, life is so hard. Oh, bother. Or to be C-3PO. It's our lot in life to suffer. But to change our expectations, don't expect applause when you live out the Beatitudes, but instead expect friction and dissonance and resistance. And so if you look further in the Sermon on the Mount, we might see some of the ways that the persecution might come on those who want to live out Jesus' ethic. We see that as we live in obedience to Scripture, we might be called fanatics. In seeking reconciliation, we might be called cowards. In seeking sexual purity, we might be called puritanical. In seeking to be faithful to our marriage partners, we might be called prudish. In rejecting oaths, we might be called sectarian. In responding nonviolently, we might be called weaklings. In loving enemies, we might be called unpatriotic. Church history provides many examples of the above. There are, however, many places in the world where persecution is a daily reality, where people are beaten, people are killed, people are ostracized for their faith in Christ. Uh, many people in Asia, if they turn to Jesus, and actually Asia and Africa are where the church is growing the fastest, by the way. Persecution is rampant in many parts of those, of those continents. And yet for many Asians, what makes Christ attractive is the fact that he identifies with the poor and the suffering. Hebrews 13.3 says that we ought to continue to remember those in prison as if we were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. By the way, I thought today three of our songs were inspired by folks in prison. So they're leading us in worship. Talk about those who are meek and powerless, right? But next Sunday, actually, is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. We're going to take some time next week to pray for persecuted brothers and sisters. But why make it a once-a-year thing? There's a couple awesome resources I'm going to draw from next week for our prayer guides. And one of them is this. It's a website that runs every day of the year. It's called, it's called persecution.com. It's Voice of the Martyrs. You can go there. You can see prayer points, and you can be very engaged with praying for them. A second one is opendoorsusa.org. And so, uh, anyway, we can pray for the persecuted each and every day. In conclusion, what is the full life? What is the blessed life? What is really living? Jesus says it's realizing how empty, poor, and powerless you are and letting Christ empower you to carry his mercy to the world. We shouldn't expect an easy time in this world. John 16:33, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Let's read this next sentence together. <laughs> in this world, you will have trouble. <laughs> Sometimes we forget that. <laughs> but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
Jesus says. We've gotten an amazing picture in the Beatitudes of Christ's upside-down kingdom and some of the blessings of the kingdom, including God's comfort, God's new earth, God's righteousness, God's mercy, God's face and his presence, and God's family. But I think in in the face of, uh, of this teaching, many of us need to repent from the fact that we worship and we run after things that are successful, things that are going to make us get rich quick or get out of jail free cards. And, and, and we tend to disregard the powerless. Again, James 2, God, uh, Jesus, James, James says to God's people, you have uh, you have slandered the poor, but you're kissing up to the rich and the powerful. What are ways that we do that? That's one of the questions I've got for you on the back of your sermon notes today if you want to look at those later. Let's pray as we close. And I got a couple songs I chose for us that kind of sing the Beatitudes in, in song form. But, but as we do that, I think some of us need to repent of the way that we are trying to seek power in our own homes, in our own lives. And we're disregarding the powerless and the weak. There might be weak people in your life. There might be powerless folks. You need to, to come around and to love and to reach out to. Jesus is proclaiming that none of us can attain the righteousness needed for the kingdom. That common saying, God helps those who help themselves, is dead wrong. Jesus says, God helps those who know they cannot help themselves, and they come to him for grace. Perhaps today you need to to repent and believe the good news, like we heard last week. The good news that people separated from God because of their sin can have a restored relationship with God by repenting of sin, and believing that Christ died for their sins, was buried and was raised three days later. That's the good news. Or all the good definitions that Danny's home group had last week, too. Those who repent and believe receive God's indwelling presence through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a humble king. We thank you that you are so countercultural, counterintuitive, and that the strong uh, things of this world, you uh, you. you downplay them. You bring them low. And instead you choose to use people and things that are weak so that you can show your strength. God, give us your eyes to see where true power comes from, where true help comes from, where true hope comes from. Not in ourselves, not in our strength, but in the power of weakness. We love you, Lord, and would you give us your heart and your eyes today to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As the ushers come forward, we're going to sing a couple songs together, and let's respond. We'll also have some prayer partners. If you want to come to the front, they're here to pray with you and for you. Let's worship the Lord together.